Well, I want to invite you to grab a Bible with me this morning, or you can open that Bible app, grab a Bible in the pew rack in front of you. But join me, if you will, in James chapter 4. James chapter 4. Over uh, the, the last few months, we have been in a study in the New Testament book of James, and in just a moment, uh, we are going to be reading the first few verses of James chapter 4. But before we do that, I want you to think about, has there ever been something in your life that you just wanted so badly, some gadget that you wanted so badly that you would go so far as to say, man, whatever it takes... I'm going to do it to get that thing, whatever it takes. Now, some of you are looking at me and you're in a very spiritual sense. You're thinking right now, I mean, what are you talking about? I'm not going to do whatever it takes to get some material item. Well, I've done this before and I'm about to share with you the story of that. I was 12 years old, I was in 6th grade, and there was something back then that was a huge deal, especially for preteen boys. Collecting cards, baseball, basketball, football cards that had uh, all of your favorite players on them. Back in the day, one of the most coveted cards was a Michael Jordan rookie card that was made by a company named Fleer. Now, we've got a picture of this that we're going to put up on the screen this morning, but uh, about a year ago, a card like this in mint condition was sold for a little over a million dollars. Everyone wanted a Michael Jordan card, and the only way that you could get it is if you bought it in these little packs of cards. There would be like 20 cards in a pack something like that, or if you, and you never knew what you were going to get in those packs, if you couldn't get one that way, you could try to trade for one, or maybe someone would sell it to you, but, but certain cards were really, really hard to get, and I really wanted a Michael Jordan card from his early years. I was willing to do whatever it took to get it. Now, I actually had a friend who had a card from Michael Jordan's second year. It wasn't worth quite as much as his rookie card, but it was a very good card. I I would ask him every day if I could have that card. Uh, What what could I do? I'll trade you to get that card. He wouldn't take it. I I told him I'd, I'd empty my piggy bank to get that card from him. He just laughed and said, I'm not selling you that card. Well, after months and months of pestering him, one day I was over at my friend's house and we we were talking about that particular card and a a certain opportunity finally presented itself in the form of a little cricket that was jumping around the house. Some of you know where this is going, but my friend finally said, okay, you'll do whatever it takes to get this card for me. I said, yes, I'll do whatever it takes. He said, I dare you to go and grab that cricket. Now, sorry for those of you who are weak-stomached, but uh, he, he said, if you eat that cricket right now, I will hand over my Michael Jordan card to you right now. Now, I, I've always been a pretty competitive person, and uh, I, if you tell me that I can't do something, I'm going to try to prove to you that I can. And so I go and I grab this cricket, and I say, are you telling me that if I eat this cricket, I, you, you promise that you're going to give me this Michael Jordan card. He said, yeah, I'll do it right now. 
He had barely got the words out of his mouth when I threw that cricket into my mouth. And uh, sorry again for grossing you out here this morning, but I, I ate that cricket and I threw a party. And in that moment, you should have seen his face like, what? As he reluctantly handed over that Michael Jordan card to me. Now, why do I tell you that story? Well, I, I, listen, I was willing to do whatever it took to get what I wanted. And here is what we need to know about this. As we come to the book of James, you and I, as the people of God, have the capacity to do whatever is necessary to get what we want. Which is not always a good thing, but God, in His grace and in His mercy, is willing to do whatever it takes to get what He wants. This is what we're going to see in the first seven verses of James chapter 4. Your Bible's open in front of you. We'll put these verses on the screen as well. But here is what James very boldly says. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says... He yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. There's a lot there in those seven verses, but I want to try to dig into this here a bit this morning. I want us to understand, what is James saying here? And if you've been with us over the last number of months, you know that James has kind of been pushing in on some really difficult areas of our lives. James is so practical in what he writes. He wants us to follow after Jesus. He wants us to live out and to obey God's truth in our lives. Well, in this section, James starts off by asking this question, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? And we might initially think of them as disagreements, that there's these people who are maybe fighting in the church about what kind of music they like or maybe about who their favorite preacher is. But in the original language, it's much, much stronger, the phrase that's being used here. Well, what James is referring to, and all of the commentators agree on this, is that he's talking about war. Remember, the, the book of James has been written to Christians, to people who are following Jesus, which I think is an extremely important thing for us to remember and to understand. But he says, hey, Christians, you guys are not just bickering here. You are at war with each other. To the point where he actually mentions things like murder and some other pretty intense language here. He talks about this idea of war, and we've uh, seen this throughout the book of James. He's constantly addressing these tensions that are going on within the church family, within the body of Christ. And, and he keeps saying, listen, 
We belong to the same family. We, we have the same Holy Spirit living in us. Why are you at war with each other? And then it's as if he kind of double clicks on this and he begins to explain the why behind the war. I want to just talk today uh, about two truths here. And these aren't easy truths to hear, but I think that this is what the Bible is saying to us here in James chapter 4. Here's the first very simple and yet very significant reality. We want what is wrong. We, as Christians here in this place, and Christians who are watching online, uh, Christians uh, who James is writing to, want in and of ourselves what is wrong. Now, I know that that's a little bit blunt. I know that that's a little straightforward. I know that that can seem a little overwhelming. But let's read what it says. James talks about how they are at war with each other. And then in verse 2, he says, you desire... And do not have, so you murder. And uh, you want something, you can't get it, and so you kill. And you say, well, is that happening here at St. Paul's? And I don't know, but it was happening in the church in Jerusalem. You covet and cannot obtain, and so you fight and quarrel against your brothers and sisters in Christ. You do not have because you do not ask. What's James saying here? Friends, I think that in order to understand what James is saying here, we need to understand a very important spiritual reality, a reality that is not only taught here by James, but it is taught throughout the entire Bible. As followers of Jesus, this is something that we all need to understand, whether we are new to the faith or whether we've been walking with the Lord for 60, 70, 80, or even more years than that. And I know that this is not a popular thing to talk about today, but here it is. The Bible says that you and I have a sinful nature in and of ourselves. The Bible calls it the flesh. And I think that it's important for us to always come back to that. In fact, if you're here at St. Paul's and you've been around for any length of time, you're going to hear us talking about this quite a bit. Why? Because when we stop remembering where we were, we start taking credit for where we are. And so we don't always go back to the, the, if we don't always go back to the fact that we were helpless, that we were hopeless apart from Christ, then all of a sudden we are going to start taking credit for the work that he has done in our life. And so we're, we constantly need to go back. We need to remind ourselves of who we once were before Christ came and transformed us. We want to talk about this here today. And for some, this is review. For others, this is new. But the Bible says very clearly that you and I were born into this world as sinful people. We were not just blank slates when we were born into this world. We were born and separated from a relationship from Jesus. Uh, it, it starts with our great ancestors, Adam and Eve. They, they disobeyed God. They followed uh, after their own desires. And we follow in their same footsteps. We continue to disobey God. And, and we don't have time this morning to go around the room and share stories about this. But let, let me just go ahead and bet that there is nobody here today, there's nobody listening online, who had a perfect week where they never said anything wrong, they never had a uh, wrong thought or sinful thought, 
They never lost it in a conversation with anybody. The Bible says that the reason why that is is because you and I have a sin nature about us. I love the way that the book of Ephesians talks about this. And I think this is very important to James because he's talking about these quarrels and these fights and these wars that are happening inside the church among the people of God. Look at what Paul says, though, in Ephesians chapter 2. This is one of my favorite passages of Scripture. The first two verses kind of paint this pretty dark picture of what life was like and is like apart from Jesus. In fact, it says that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We pick it up there in verse 3, and here's what it says. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Now, if the story ended there, it would be a pretty dark and scary story for all of humanity. But verse 4 is one of my most uh, favorite verses. It's an amazing verse, one of the most amazing verses in all of the scriptures uh, about the grace of God. Here is what it says, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. But God. Now, if you don't underline things in your Bible, I would recommend today that you start underlining things in your Bible by underlining these two words. If, if there's not a but God, we are hopeless, we are helpless. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming age, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not of your own doing. It is the gift of God. Again, I, I know that this is a review for some of you here this morning. But we need to remember where we came from so that we uh, don't take credit for where we are. And James is reminding us here that you and I have a sin nature, which I hope is freeing to some of us here this morning. Because when you get saved, I don't care if it was last week or if it was decades and decades ago. When you get saved, here is the sobering reality. Your sin nature doesn't go away. Your sinful nature, my sinful nature, remains. And God puts his Holy Spirit inside of us. And now there is this war that is going on there. And that's what James is talking about here. You and I cannot educate ourselves or pay our way out of our spiritual bankruptcy. Only God can save. When he saves us, now you and I are dependent upon him as we war against the flesh every single day. Galatians chapter 5. I mean, there's two passages of scripture that I really love that talk about this idea of this war that's going on inside of us. If you've ever wondered, I mean, why is it that I mess up? Why do I sin? Why do I still stumble around? I mean, I've been following Jesus for like 40 years. Why do I still struggle with this? Well, the Bible tells us in Romans chapter 7 why, and then in this passage right here, Galatians chapter 5, verse 16, it says this, But I say, walk by the Spirit, 
and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Here, here are these two things that are at war within you. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Listen, I hope today that you are relieved at the fact that you are not crazy. I mean, friends, the struggle is real. Not just for you, but for every single person who has the Spirit of God living inside of them and is struggling with this sin nature. You see, we get discouraged. We think, wow, I mean, something must be wrong with me. And to be honest, sometimes we even idolize certain Christians because we think that they're perfect. But listen, if you find a perfect Christian in your life, you better run away from them because they're not perfect. Maybe a little bit closer to home here. I'm, I'm, I've been a part of St. Paul's Bible Church here for 20 years, over 20 years. One of the things that I just love so much about the leadership here is that none of them walk around with like some kind of cape on, like some superhero Christian. None of the leaders of this church uh, uh, think that they are somehow perfect. We are all desperate people in need of the grace of God. And, and we're just like every other person here. There's a guy that I admire and have admired over the years who's been a pastor and written a number of very good books over the last six decades. His name is John Piper, and I read something a few years ago that I, I thought, wow, I mean, that is incredibly encouraging, but at the same time, very sobering. He said, I've been following Jesus my whole, with my whole heart and soul for over 65 years, and every single day... I struggle. Again, that's encouraging because that means that I'm not crazy. But it's also sobering because there is a fight, there is a war that is going on inside of each one of us. That's what James is talking about here. He's talking to Christians about this war that's going on inside of their church. And the reason is because there is this war that's going on inside of each one of them. Friends, the reality is that our flesh wages war when it does not get what it wants. Verse 2, James says, you want something and you don't get it, and so you murder. Now, I don't know if he was talking about actual murders that had taken place. We don't know, and we don't have information about murders that had happened in the Jerusalem church. It, it may have. Uh, don't ever discount or doubt the ability of the flesh. But it may be that James is tapping into something that his big brother uh, used to teach. You remember that James's big brother was Jesus himself. And some of you know that Jesus, in Matthew chapter 5, gave the Sermon on the Mount. In that sermon, um, Jesus was talking, about, or talking to all of his disciples. He was giving them some very practical kingdom principles. And in Matthew chapter 5, he's talking about all of these different things that they had heard and had been taught from a religious background that they had grown up in. He said, you know what? You've heard it said, don't murder. That's a really good thing. Don't kill people. But I say to you that if you stop yourself from actually committing murder, but you have this murderer's hatred in your heart towards your brother, you've actually committed murder with him in your heart. 
He says, you know what, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. Amen to that. I mean, that's good. That's right. Don't commit adultery. But I say to you that if you are walking around with lust in your eyes and lust in your mind, you're committing adultery in your heart. In that moment, Jesus was turning everything upside down. So many of us are walking around and we're, we're most concerned about what we look like on the outside, about what people see about us, but we don't really worry about what's in our hearts. Jesus says, no, it's what's on the inside that matters most. Jesus is after internal transformation. I don't care uh, 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 about what's, what is on the outside as much as I care about what's on the inside in your heart. James is pressing in on this point. Left to ourselves, you and I want what is wrong. Our flesh wants what is wrong. And our flesh will do whatever it takes to get what it wants. Listen, if you are doubting that right now, pray to Jesus that he might humble you. Because your flesh will do whatever it takes to get what it wants. James hits us right between the eyes and he says, you want what is wrong. But there's a second reality, and this is encouraging. Um, God wants what is his. God wants what is his. Verse 4, James continues on with some very strong language here. Look at what he says. He says, you adulterous people. We'll come back and talk about that in a little bit. Do you not know? That friendship with the world is enmity with God. Who, therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Very strong language here. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? We're going to get back to that adultery thing in a bit. But first, um, what does it mean to be a friend to the world? You you know, in our day and age, uh, that word friend, it gets thrown around a lot. In the social media era that we live in, um, things have changed a lot. Before social media, it used to be that friendship meant friendship. Like, if I said that I had a a friend, uh, you knew that I would know their name, and I uh, knew their family, and I would go over to their house, and I would hang out with them wherever we could. And now, friendship is just kind of weird. It's common to have people just add or, or add you as a friend on social media, and And, you know, you you have to start digging a little bit just to figure out if you even know this person or how you know this person. That They're a friend, but you can't even remember their name. You can't even remember the last time that you saw them. But that's not what James is talking about. He's talking about the kind, he's not talking about this haphazard following and liking certain things of the world. He's talking about an intimate relationship. That's how the readers of the first century would have read this. The idea of friendship here involves me knowing you and you knowing me. We're friends. We hang out. We live our lives together. We, we know a lot of things about each other. And so this helps us to understand what James is talking about here when he says, don't be friends with the world. Many of you know this, but the world does not mean um, the actual earth. God created the earth. It's a good gift from him. 
But all throughout the New Testament, we see this idea of the world being a a spiritual system made up of basically everything that's anti-God. We have places all over the Bible that talk about this. 1 John chapter 5 comes to mind where we're told, don't love the things of the world. And, um, you know, it's talking about the spiritual systems that made up of beliefs and morals and values that are totally against God, anti-God. James says that friendship and intimate relationship with the world is enmity to God. What does that word mean? It means to actually be actively opposed to something. What James is saying is, listen, if you as a follower of Jesus start to make the world your friend, the the people that you hang out with, then you're actively opposing God. That's some pretty strong language there. It's almost like he's kind of drawing this line in the sand and saying, whose side are you going to be on? God's side or the world's side? A lot of times what we like to do is we like to straddle that line. We have one foot on one side and one foot on the other side. James says, you can't do that. Even straddling the line is opposing to God. This idea of befriending the world is like flirting with the enemy. And that's why he talks about adultery here. What is adultery? It's being unfaithful in a relationship. Living outside of the proper boundaries. Listen, as followers of Jesus, we are in a relationship with God. And it would be like me saying, yeah, uh, me and my wife, Sue... I mean, I'm not totally committed to our marriage. I, I, I mean, I got a couple of things going on on the side. But, but listen, I'm, I'm not really committing adultery. And I want to be sensitive here. I, I know that this is uh, touching on some real life things. But what James says is, you adulterous people, you call yourself a Christian. You say that you're in a relationship with God and you're flirting with the enemy. You're carrying on these other relationships and you're not being faithful to the relationship that God has given to you. And when you do that, you're actively making yourself an enemy of God. You're cheating on that relationship. What does that look like? Well, I want us to just think about that really practically here today. What does it look like practically to have friendship with the world? I thought about my own life in this, and and I asked God this week to just kind of give me some ideas of how, in my own life, I can kind of straddle the line in the sand. What does friendship with the world look like, practically speaking? We're going to try to put these on the screen. I hope you find them helpful as well. What does friendship with the world look like? Well, number one, my truth takes priority over God's truth. Again, I don't know about you, but this is me, that my thoughts and my opinions can start to matter more to me than God and his word, what God and his word has to say. Friends, there's only one truth. And we know that the author of truth is God himself. When I start to become friends with the world, my truth starts to matter more to me than what God's truth does. Number two. I lose my sensitivity to the Spirit of God. 
when I am doing some things that I shouldn't be doing, and it used to bother me because God was kind of trying to pull me away from being an enemy of his, but over time, it can kind of become callous to that, and I become desensitized to those things. It's kind of like when a guitar player gets some experience learning how to play a guitar. I mean, the first time when you first start learning to play the guitar, your fingers are really sensitive. And for like the first six months, they hurt all of the time. But if you keep going, your fingers stop stinging and you don't feel it anymore. And you just kind of build up these calluses to the strings. We can become callous to the voice of the Holy Spirit when we, we are constantly dabbling in the things of the world. Here's the last one, number three. When I'm befriending the world, my glory becomes ultimate, God's glory becomes optional. In case you haven't heard, everything in the universe exists in order to glorify God. I think that that's kind of an idea that's getting lost today. I mean, it seems like all kinds of popular things in the Christian world today revolve around me. Revolve around what can make my life better. And we talk a lot less about God and his awesome, indescribable, incredible glory. And so... For me, these things are, that, that I, are things that I can struggle with when I start befriending the world. Maybe for you, um, you, you can relate to some of these things. Maybe for you, there are other things that come to your mind when you think of this, that, this struggle that you have. But, when, but then in verse 5, James says something that I think is quite honestly, uh, uh, can make us feel a little unnerved. He, he talks about committing adultery in our hearts. He talks about following the world, having this intimate relationship with the flesh, and how the flesh can, lead, uh, can start leading our lives. And then in verse 5, we read uh, about how God yearns jealously. Now, this isn't uh, something new to James. In fact, it's all over the Bible. We, we, we read about how God is a jealous God. But what does that mean? Is this some kind of insecure jealousy? Is God over there in the corner just kind of like a jealous boyfriend, like a jealous girlfriend, pouting because you've been flirting with the world? What does it mean that God is jealous? Friends, God is not jealous about you, but God is jealous for you. Listen, he wants what is his and he will do whatever it takes to get what is his. If you're a parent you understand this principle. You might not say it this way, but when you talk about your kids and what they're spending their time doing, the, the friends that they're hanging out with, you're not jealous because you wish that they would somehow text you more often. You're jealous about their affirmations, about their affections, about the, the, the places that they put their identity in. You're saying, I'm concerned about what you are doing, about who is influencing you. You better believe that God is jealous over your heart's affections and over what is consuming you. I want to show you a movie clip. I doubt that you came to church this morning expecting that you were going to see a movie clip today, but that's what we're going to do. I love this movie. It came out in 2008. I've watched it a number of times because over the years it has been replayed on network TV. But this movie is called Taken, 
And it is about a father who loves his daughter so much that nothing will stop this man from rescuing her. He's a CIA operative. He, he uh, gets a call that his daughter has been kidnapped, that she's been taken by some human traffickers to Paris, France. And, and as a CIA operative, he says, I'm coming for you. Now, he flies to France. He tracks down his daughter's kidnappers. He, he finds a way to make contact with his daughter's kidnappers. I want to show you a conversation that takes place. This is a very iconic conversation that he has with his kidnappers. Let's go ahead and play the clip. Wow. Now, <laughs> I am not advocating for that kind of violence in any way, okay? But, but here is what I want you to see. That is a very passionate father. He, he literally will do whatever it takes in order to get his kid. If you don't know the movie, well, I'm, I'm sorry about this. I'm going to spoil it for you, but he does get her back. <laughs> He is bloodied, he's beaten up, he's gone through all of these things in order to get her. At the end of the movie, he's holding her in his arms, his little girl that he's just rescued. He looks at her, she looks at him, and she says, Daddy, you came for me. And he looks back at her and he says, I told you that I would. That is this idea of God's jealousy. It's like Liam Neeson in that movie saying, I, I, I'm, I'll do whatever it takes in order to get my kid back. You came for me. I told you that I would. The jealousy of God has it, does it, shouldn't make you nervous. It should cause us to praise him for the passion and have passion towards him because of the passion that he has towards us. Verse 6, James kind of brings it home here. After calling them murderers and adulterers, he says this to them. He, he says this to us as well. But he, God, gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Listen, whenever, wherever you are today, I hope that you know that God gives more grace. I don't care if this is the first time that you've been in church. I don't care if you've been in church for the last seven, eight decades. I don't care how much your life is messed up. God is jealously coming after your heart. He'll do whatever it takes to get his kids. He gives more grace. It says that God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Do you know what Liam Neeson's daughter is in that moment on the boat when she's been rescued? She is humble. She's looking up at her dad who has done so much to come get her. And she says, Daddy, you came for me. 
Friends, that should be our response. That is our response. That we look at our sinfulness, we look at what God has done in our lives, we look at how he has shown such great grace and given us such great mercy. What should our response be? Humility. Wow, God, you came for me. Yeah, I told you that I would. I love this idea of being uh, of God uh, opposing the, the proud but giving grace to the humble. What does that mean? I, I read an illustration that I really liked uh, about this. Uh, nobody goes to the Grand Canyon with all of its beauty, all of its awesomeness, with how big it is. No one goes to the Grand Canyon for the first time, elbows his buddy and says, Hey, I, I, you know, look at how much I can bench press. Look at how amazing I am and start bragging about how much they can lift, right? There's all of this grandness. There's all of this beauty. I'm not trying to flex when I'm looking around at the grandeur of of the Grand Canyon. I'm not going to go outside, look up into the heavens with all of the wonders and the stars and the galaxy and the vastness of the universe and then start talking about how much money I made last month. When we behold what is beautiful... It makes us humble. Listen, as Christians, we should never be arrogant because we have been given so much from God. We, uh, we, we did nothing to deserve that. The only thing that we bring to the table in our salvation is our sin. And that should cause us to be full of humility. It's good news that God gives more grace No matter what kind of grace you need today, he is willing to give it to you. And that is great news. That no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter what your week looked like, no matter what your thought life has looked like, no matter what sin you are struggling with right now, he gives more grace. He isn't walking around scolding us and... um, uh, uh, he, He isn't reprimanding us all the time for all the ways that we've messed up. Sure, there are consequences for our actions, but he gives more grace. So what is our response to all of this? Well, verse 7, submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Don't play around with one foot in the world and one foot with God. No, resist the devil. Submit yourself to God. I want to ask the worship team to come up here In a few moments, we are going to prepare to take communion together. Friends, listen. God came for you. He stepped into your mess. He came for you when he didn't have to. He died on the cross. He literally took all of your sin. None of it was his. All of it was ours. He was nailed to the cross. He was killed. The Bible says that God's wrath was poured not on you, but it was God's wrath was poured out all on him for you. He was raised again to prove that it wasn't fake, that it wasn't just something made up, that it wasn't just some big story. It seems absolutely unbelievable. He came for us. He came for me. And he says, I told you that I would. Our response must be to submit to God, to say yes to the offer of free forgiveness and grace, and to praise His holy name. Let's pray.